Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks. You're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Hello and welcome back to the EPL Roundtable. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries, and as always, if you'd like to reach us at the podcast, you can do so by either tweeting us at EPL Roundtable or emailing us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com. All right, uh, we unfortunately had a couple of late drops, but I am joined by Zach Force, who has not been on in a long time. It's just going to be the two of us, but we're going to largely stick to the normal format of the show. Zach, very nice to finally get you back on. Um, we will jump in with some uh, news and notes. The first one... Uh, is going to be uh, about a comment I made last week, just because I feel like we need to clarify. Last week I said that uh, Stoke were the least inspired side that Tottenham had seen play this season. Both of the guests that were on the show and people have commented since uh, with loads of different answers to that, saying that it wasn't Stoke. Stoke again this week, though, falling easily to West Ham. Uh, curious, Zach, to get your take on on this. Who is the team that most failed to show up against Liverpool last season? And if it isn't Stoke, would you also agree that they are pretty uninspiring? I just want to say thanks for having me on again. Um, it's good to be back. Um, on the issue, I would definitely say that Stoke are one of the least turning up teams in the Prem right now. Um, I think the project with Mark Hughes is completely stalled. Um, I don't think it's going anywhere. I think it's time for a change there in management and in style. Um, he's tried to play some progressive football there, but I, I think it's kind of like fizzled out now, and uh, I think he's losing the dressing room. Um, looking at the results, I didn't actually catch the Spurs-Stoke game, but looking at the results, um, it looks as if Stoke are just drifting and haven't really got much fight in them. Um, from a Liverpool point of view, I'm probably going to go with Southampton. Um, they turned up to Anfield about three weeks ago, four weeks ago, and um, comprehensively lost 3-0, um, didn't have a single shot on target, um, didn't really have much to say in the game. Um, it looks as if a few of their players were beaten before the whistle was blown. Um, they were in some pretty bad form at the time. Uh, it was it was around that month where they just weren't scoring any goals, basically. Uh, since then, they've uh, they've kicked on a little bit and they've, they've had some good performances. Um also, can't can't uh, let United get away without a special mention. Um, they they popped into one field yet again. Just played played for the draw, you know, standard over the years now with the Van Gaal and Mourinho tactics. So, gotta give a special mention to them. They they didn't really give much either. Yeah, actually, I'm um, very fortuitous that you just brought up uh, Jose Mourinho. Another thing I wanted to talk about this week um, is that Alan Pardew said that Mourinho was basically more of a winner than um, Pep Guardiola because. Uh, he was saying that even though Pardew himself and Mourinho would like to play uh, every match like they were going to win 4-0, that managers can't really do that. The interesting thing about that quote is that's basically what Guardiola is doing this season. Uh, who do you think is the better of those two with Pardew throwing his hat in the ring, I feel? Why can't we? Um, well, for me, uh, you're asking the wrong person for a balanced debate. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
for me, it's 100% uh, Pep Guardiola. Um, I don't think there's a man involved in sport that I dislike more than Jose Mourinho. Um, I think he's a hypocrite. I think he's a bad winner. I think he's a bad loser. And I think he plays anti-football. Um, to me, the only the only comparison to be made between these two is the fact that one like is the light of football and one is the dark side of football for me. Um, obviously, he, Mourinho, was, if you're going to call him the dark side of football, he's probably the pinnacle of it because, yes, he is a successful manager and he does do well with that style and tactics. Um, but, yeah, Mourinho would rather play for, an, you know, obviously... If, if you need a draw to win the league, then by all means play for a draw. But even in that position, I feel like Pepper still play for a win. I think that's what makes him like so special because he's also well capable of doing it, even under the most stressful of situations. Um, I think during both the careers, if you look side by side, I think Jose has got more trophies. But um, I think Pep's had about half the career that Mourinho has so far. And if you look at it on a, on, on a trophies per season basis, then I'm pretty sure that he outstrips. Uh, the Portuguese man. Um, there's no doubt Mourinho is a good manager in his own regard. Um, he, he does build machine-like football squads, and if you want any manager to like sort of save your life and gra- to grind out a draw or any kind of result, a, a 1-0 away from home at a tough ground, then he's probably the one you choose. But um, Pep just always seems to play the beautiful game. Um, and it, it just because he's not winning 1-0 doesn't mean that he's not grinding out results. I mean, you've seen recently... Um, in the last month or so, um, particularly with Raheem Sterling getting goals to win games 2-1, 1 nil, and stuff like that. So it's not as if they're having it all their own way. He's built this squad. Obviously, he spent a lot of money, don't get me wrong. He's built this squad and instilled, instilled a mentality where like the best players in the league want to work hard for him and they want to work hard for, the, for, for each other. Um, and I think that's something that when it goes sour with Mourinho, which it tends to do, that kind of stuff just breaks down where I've never really... I've only ever heard of a couple of players that don't like playing for Guardiola. One of them, most famously being Ibrahimovic, who, let's be honest, is a bit of a balloon himself. <laughs> <laughs> he's a bit, he's a bit um, big-headed for me. Um, the best way I can probably put it um, in one sentence would be Mourinho tries to drag you down to his level, whereas Pep tries to lift anyone who's willing to listen up to his level. And the, the Nathan Red- Redmond incident from... From the Etihad a few weeks ago is, is is probably the prime example of that. I mean, he, he just wants to teach people football and he just wants to improve everyone who, who will give him the time. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things about the way it was framed is the word better. Cause there are obviously a lot of ways to judge that. Um, as far as being a fan of a club, I think I would obviously rather watch Guardiola's football than Mourinho's football. As you mentioned, players tend to uh, really enjoy playing under... Guardiola, and he tends to kind of bring players with him a lot of the places he goes, as opposed to Mourinho, who accidentally goes to clubs that have players that he's gotten rid of in the past. Um, you were right on the trophy count. Mourinho with 25, Pep with 22. Mourinho doing it at five clubs. Pep doing it at 2.5, because one of those did come with Barcelona B, and up to people whether or not they really want to count that one. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, I, I I think I'd much rather be on the Pep Guardiola side of things there. Um, but another reason why I think this is interesting is trying to argue that the difference between Mourinho and Guardiola is their ability to win titles is like arguing between a 98 and a 97 at school, like on a paper or something. Like we're talking to like the highest end of trophy winners and then arguing who's better based on trophies. So if, if we expanded that thought to kind of all Premier League managers – 
how important do you think trophies should be as a barometer for managers? Like, if if a manager has more trophies, do you tend to think, oh, that's a better manager because he has more trophies? Or is it just, like, a factor in the equation of, of what makes a good manager for you? Um, It's a hard one. There's quite a few barometers that I would look at to, like, decide if, um, if a manager is a good manager or not. Um, I think it, it depends on the club. I mean, you can't judge Eddie Howe um, for, like, well, maybe not Eddie Howe because he, he has won the playoffs and <laughs> and like league titles in the lower divisions. But um, some 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 teams can attract a manager of uh, Jose Mourinho or a Pep Guardiola. So you can't really judge that manager who's managing that lower team on trophies. But then you could also argue that if he was good enough to win trophies regularly, then the Kareem would rise to the top and he'd get a job at a better a better club, um, so to speak. That's always been my argument against someone like Sam Allardyce, who who is a good manager in a certain situation, i.e., dragging teams up from the bottom and getting them into mid table. But if he was, if after how many years he's been managing, like fifteen years of management, if he if he was that good, then someone from a top top team in England would have given him a chance to win trophies. I mean, obviously he got the chance with England and he blew it. So, and I don't think Everton are really in that top that top caliber but there are other, um there are some some ways to judge to judge a manager obviously the style of football um the results of a, a smaller team which i just mentioned um but i think it's the, the trophies are the ones the, the managers that win trophies are the ones that get recorded in the history books and get remembered so i think it probably is like sort of like the be all and end all because you know the high-end managers are the, are the ones that we read about and talk about all the time and they're the ones that that will be that we'll learn about in in generations to come when we're looking back at football greats and stuff. So it probably is it probably does come down to trophies in a sense. But I think let's say for example at the moment Mourinho has more trophies than Pep. I think you can probably you can probably change that to saying that Pep is still the better manager because he's done that without gouging anyone's eye out <laughs> by playing better football, um, without alienating the majority of the footballing world and the media. So for me, I would say Pep is a better manager than Mourinho. And I would also say that trophies is probably like 50% of the equation, at least when you're judging like the high, the highest end of managers. Mm. But there's also like other factors, like I said, like style and, and, um, you know, behavior persona and stuff like that. Yeah. I do think that's really interesting. We, we spoke, um, a couple of weeks ago on the show about, uh, which, which teams had impressed us the most thus far. And, you know, obligatory shots for the big names, but obviously also um, Burnley and Watford, largely behind what Deich and Marco Silva have done. And to your point, you could argue that they're doing just as good a managerial job as, the uh, as uh, well, maybe not Pep because they're just having a ridiculous and special season. But, you know, I, I think an argument could be made that Sean Deich has done just as good of a job uh, as a manager this year as Jose Mourinho. Uh, obviously has yeah. way less and what he's achieved with what he has to the point total he has versus... Uh, Mourinho and, and their expenditure and everything. Uh, I think a debate could definitely be had there. Um, <clears throat> I'm really interested in this topic, obviously, because Mauricio Pochettino is currently trophyless, and um, this is this has become kind of a, a talking point, um, both with, within the Tottenham community and externally, kind of looking at us. Um, <clears throat> and there was actually, weirdly, a really interesting uh, interview uh, with Craig Bellamy and. Um, Guillaume Balag, I'm not going to try his last name, um, who I have tended to, I'm not really a particularly a fan of either of them, to be honest, but they had a really interesting conversation about Pacha's legacy, quote unquote, thus far. 
And Bellamy raised a really interesting point that was, as a player, you can only win a trophy, what, five-ish times a season total? That's five days of your life. The rest of the season, the rest of the year, you're going into training, you're seeing this person day to day. And so his argument was that almost quality of life under a manager is more important than winning trophies. Now, I think, obviously, this is a there's going to be a lot of gray in this. I think he might be thinking the way he wanted uh, to be treated as a player. Obviously, there are others that are just that just want to win trophies. You mentioned Zlatan earlier. It's all it's all he wants. Mm-hmm. He just wants to win. He doesn't really care how it happens. He just wants trophies. He just wants to win. Um, but I think it's an, an interesting point, kind of from that perspective. And as a fan of Tottenham, I do not miss having to constantly second guess the manager. We finally like reached peace with him. Um, there aren't like posh outs or anything crazy like that. And I think people that are somewhat bored with this Tottenham team, whether it be internally or externally, saying that we have to win a trophy. And and it's been me. Although I did think, I, I was more saying from the club perspective that, that we needed to start winning something, something to hang our hats on. But I think it's more of a sentimental argument that, that we feel this Tottenham team deserves to win something so that it is remembered, as you mentioned. That, that when people look back, this isn't like a trivia question, right? This is like an actual team that puts something in a trophy case. But I do think it's a big part of it, especially historically. Um, but I, I think from a player side and as a fan base, it's really nice to just have a really good manager who does the things, like you said, plays an attractive play style, clearly uh, has engendered a, a, a form of love from his players um, and, and created a very positive environment, kind of top-down. And I think it's impressive that a manager is able to do that because there was a lot of fan distrust for Daniel Levy, who largely has done very little differently since hiring Pochettino. But somehow that kind of goodwill has expanded, has expanded both ways, uh, both up and down. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, I think it's really interesting. I agree with you. I think trophies are a big part of it kind of after the fact. But I'm currently loving being in the moment with Mauricio Pochettino, uh, regardless of how many trophies he has won. All right, uh, now we're going to do a segment we haven't done in a while. It's going to be match reviews. I don't know why we chose this week to do it based on our result, but we'll lead in with Uzek. Had a, a fairly comprehensive and easy victory against Bournemouth today. Um, I think the big three all scored, right? Coutinho, Salah, and, and uh, Firmino. So that's, yep, that's yep. basically what you're looking for every time you uh, head into a match. Oh, and Lovren, <laughs> somehow. I know, yeah, out of nowhere. Um, yeah, it was it was a good day. Um I went into the game a bit apprehensive because of the of the um, the result last year, three um, one up with about fifteen minutes to go, and we managed to lose four three, which is a pretty special achievement. Um, so yeah, I was a bit, I was a bit scared going in, but um, we, we were too good for them um, straight from the get go. You could see that they weren't going to sit in with with eleven players behind the ball, which is always encouraging for us. Um, you could see that we were getting in behind, but not quite getting that last pass um, correct um, until. Until uh, Coutinho pops up with a, with a nice individual goal um, to get us going, and then Lovren followed it up with the diving header um, just a couple, a few minutes later. Uh, yeah, it's always nice to see the big three scoring. Um, we didn't need Mane off the bench either, so that's good. A good bit of rest before the Arsenal game uh, coming up this weekend. Coming, um, yeah, it was. It, it could have been. A, it could have been different. To be fair, um, Bournemouth did hit the post through default. Um, once when we were two 0 just before half time, it was about about the forty second minute. Poor, poor defending from Liverpool from midfield to back. Um, 
we lost possession around the centre circle and then Bournemouth were just surging through the middle. And it's literally like coming through Liverpool's central area is like the Red Sea Pine. It's so much space in there at times. It's really criminal. Um, and Defoe gets clean through uh, after Lovren loses him. But I'm not going to completely blame him for that because the midfield just offer no protection at all. Um, and then he hits the post. Um, if that goes in, atmosphere maybe builds and, and they go into half time, you know, only 1-0 down and reasonably happy. Um so yeah, it could have been different, but um, that hits the post, and then we just go, we wrote it up in the second half. Um, nice to see Oxley Chamberlain playing well again, and yeah, as you mentioned, a goal each for the big three. Mo Salah breaking more records, and it, actually, um, just on that, we we've actually just set a new a new English top flight record for um, consecutive away matches won by three goals or more, which oh, is wow. which is now four, and it's never been done before in the in the uh, top division of the English league. So yeah, nice day. Yeah, it was uh, very impressive. Uh, the Defoe goal attempt probably should have been a goal. If you see Defoe running clean like that, you, you yeah. probably in your head are already like, oh, yeah. That's yeah, I fully expected it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially uh, as a Liverpool fan, as your home defense has been much better than your away defense of late. Uh, so probably even more factors like, oh, it's going in. Fortunately mm-hmm. for you, uh, did not. We actually spoke uh, a few weeks ago uh, about Liverpool and how um, impressive it is that Jurgen Klopp has, I don't know if it's learned his injury lesson or just you have the depth to do it now, where now you're using your depth to prevent injuries instead of reacting to them. I thought that was a really interesting point. Would you agree with that? Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, we've made by far the most changes to our starting eleven in the league this season. I think I think it's above 70 changes now across Ooh. across all the games, which is like 20 more than the team in second. And um, at times, I do think he's been a little bit excessive with it, which is why we're so far ahead in terms of changes compared to the teams in second and third. But um, it is it is good to know that he's learning lessons. I mean, there is literally nothing worse than watching a team go from season to season and the manager doesn't learn a lesson. Like, there is nothing more frustrating when you can see people on Twitter and, like, your friends and you're having a discussion and, and you can see one of the issues. And, you know, and the manager who's paid $7 million a year is not doing anything about it. And then the the obvious argument is, yeah, he knows more than you, but come on. Like Liverpool ran out of legs in literally January last season. That's half a season. So it's nice to see that like he he's learned from that lesson and rotated the squad. And even though we are like banging the middle basically now of the of the, of the busy Christmas period, it still looks like the guys are pretty fresh. Um, so it, you know it's pretty good. Mane's sat out at least two ninety minutes um, in in the last three weeks or so, which is good for his legs. Um, Adam Lallana's just come back, which is you know good for squad depth again. And um, it's nice to see other players getting chances like Solanke and stuff. Um, obviously, he started in the derby; it was a big call. But I think other than the fact that obviously he didn't score, I think he played okay. So it's nice to see that like the squad players feel trusted, and when they come onto the pitch, they look confident. And yeah, as you say, preventing injuries is, is like a massive key for us. Um, last season, and, and in many seasons gone by, you've seen with Liverpool squads that as soon as like a couple of injuries come in, then then they just look like a completely bang average team. I think in this case, this is probably the best squad I've seen Liverpool have um, in my time supporting them, certainly in the last, say, 10 years. I mean, under Benitez, we had, say, we obviously had Mascherano, Alonso, Torres, Gerrard, Cow. But that was the starting eleven. Once you look at the bench, the bench was really poor. It had players like Elzar on it, and you know, kids that that were just never going to get a game really. Um, so it is nice to see that we've got like five or six players that can actually come in, and the team just doesn't completely break down. It is it's really good to see. I just hope 
we can like push on, challenge for second at least. Mm. Uh, blind spots for managers is an interesting thing you brought up and will be brought up in the topic segment. So interesting to hear you say that. Um, for <clears throat> Tottenham, we did not beat Manchester City. <clears throat> uh, we sure didn't. Um, <laughs> lost uh, 4-1. Uh, I know sometimes people bring up what the score should have been. Uh, 5-2. The, the difference is the same. Jesus misses a penalty. Um, and I have no idea what Harry Winks was doing dribbling away from goal that close to it. Um, as uh, Pochettino said after the match, uh, Manchester City were just the better team and were pretty much from the off. Um, the possession stats, quote-unquote, look very close. But the amount of meaningful possession was heavily in City's favor. Um, they... In the middle of the match, uh, I was unfortunately watching with a Manchester City friend. If you're listening to this, hey, Kange. Um, <laughs> I was joking about Delph's positioning. And I was like, what what position is he meant to be playing right now? Left back? Yeah. Because he was just drifting in the middle of the pitch. But what that allowed them to do, because we were not threatening really down the right side until we moved Sun over there, is that Delph was just floating around, which gave them the the benefit of basically an extra player in midfield. And while I think Dembele and Winks are both very good central midfielders in obviously very different ways, um, I think both of them are better when paired with a really good holding midfielder, whether it be Dyer or just a pure defensive wrecking midfielder like Wanyama. Uh, I don't <laughs> yeah. really think the pairing of them is super ideal. Um, and City took advantage of it. And I think them having Gundogan back in fit, he's just such kind of a wild card as a midfielder. It was hard for either of them to know really what was going on. Um, Trippier just got schooled by Leroy Sané all day. I thought it was uh, very wise to put Danny Rose uh, on instead of Ben Davis. It did break up the usual wing-back rotation, but we saw what Mane did to Ben Davis last season. I think uh, Poch knew better than to let that happen again, uh, this time with Raheem Sterling, who then obviously, what, what do you think he still had two assists? So maybe he <laughs> didn't go as, as well as we would have liked. Um, but I thought Rose actually individually had a really good game, although it was one of those kind of all-hands-to-deck kind of games where, like, he, he stood out a lot because he was involved a lot, which usually isn't what you want from a defender. But I thought he did fairly well, although I have seen some hate for him since. Um, Erickson was a little disappointing. Della Ali was very disappointing yet again. Um, I, I don't know what we're going to do to try to get him back on track. Uh, if this was his second year, <laughs> we've joked about this before, Zach, uh, uh, there was an article talking about Della Ali's sophomore slump being this year, ignoring the fact that it's his third year, which I found uh, really amusing. Um, yeah. But he is struggling. There, there's no doubt about that. Uh, I, I personally think one of the things is he's when, – when he's faced with uh, difficulty, he either goes anger or backheels. Uh, or nutmegs, or, or something to that effect. He just needs to, I think, narrow down his game, narrow the range of his outcomes um, until he gets his confidence back. And then, obviously, his flair is a large part of who he is as a player. It's why he's won two Young Player of the Year awards already. It's why he's such a destabilizing part of our attack, because defenses really don't know how to mark him. But when he's being unsuccessful with those moves, he's just giving away possession constantly, usually launching an opponent counterattack, which is... Something you do not want to happen. So I think maybe if we started resting him more, um, maybe give Winks a chance to play further up the pitch once uh, Wanyama's back, which should be a week or so. I, I just think he, he needs some time to resettle because when he doesn't resettle, he gets angry, which I mentioned is the other outcome. And uh, obviously the challenge on Kevin De Bruyne looks very, very bad. Um, my opinion was more, yes, he went in very hard, did get the ball first. But I've seen people say that it doesn't matter that he got the ball first because his intent was still to injure even if he got the ball. 
Uh, Zach, as a neutral, I'd be interested to get your take. How did you see that incident? Um, I think for the um, for the Ali one, I think I'm going to say it's a red, um, simply because I know this is not, probably not the way that like official referees are meant to like, you know, are meant to referee the game. But when when you know the players and like sort of if you're officiating them or as we're doing, we're watching them week in week out. You kind of get to know the persona of the players and stuff. So like if Paul Scholes comes in with the two footer, then you probably know that he meant to hurt him because he's tackling horrendous and he just yeah. like he was always known for it. Whereas if say I don't know Joe Allen came in with a, with a, with a, with an accidental two footer, like you, that's what you'd probably say it was an accident. Like he didn't mean to like go in and break his leg. Um, Deli Ali is, is is as you say he does he does like revert to anger if things aren't going his way, which is something that he's going to need to stamp out. It's definitely something that say um, one of his idols is Steven Gerrard, as far as I'm aware, and that's like something that he had in his game when he was like twenty twenty one. Um, if if Deli Ali wants to go to the next level, he needs to get that out of his game because he's no good. He's no good to his manager if he, if you know he gets sent off twice a season and misses six games when he's such a good player and. I know he's struggling at the minute, um, but I think he'll I think he'll come back to form eventually. It's just um, just needs to iron out those creases. But for me, I think that one was a red card because it, it kind of looked like there was a bit of intent there. And um, as it, I think we're going to discuss the Harry Kane one as well. Mm. For me, it, it was the opposite. I kind of thought that that tackle was um, I thought it was I thought it was yellow. He does catch him a bit high. Um, but it's it's definitely not two footed. Um, not not that the alley one was, but I'm just saying as mm. a slide tackle, you're usually looking for how many feet there is, um, feet are involved, and um, you know I think I think he's he's just stretching for a ball that's a bit too far from him. Um, yeah, Harry Kane has got that has got that in his locker a little bit as well. You know, n- not the anger issue, but sort mm. of like every just now and then forward he, challenges. Yeah, you like, know, what dude, I mean? just don't. Just, yeah, a striker's tackle basically when you when like a defender would just know that they aren't getting there, and I think that's what it is. I think he's just like trying to get to a ball against a quicker player as well. That is, that, yeah, he's just not going to get there. Yeah. So for me, that's the difference between those two. Yeah, and on that one, um, kind of to your point of of maybe referees shouldn't think about this. Uh, there were images of of Kane kind of talking to Sterling after the match, um, assuming that as as England compatriots, he was just like ah. Yeah, that was on me. That was that was a big old whoopsie. Um, definitely earned a yellow. As a Spurs fan, would not have been surprised if it was red. Like you could you could see how that argument could be made. But but agree with your assessment on that one. Um, the Della one, I I might just be too biased. Like genuinely, that might just be the situation. I, I think yellow was probably right as he did get the ball, but he he did go in very hard, um, regardless of whether he not or not he got the ball. Um, I don't know. Just, just my instinct at the time was not a red, but again, uh, you know, we all carry a little bit of bias into these things, so uh, yeah, that definitely. could just be uh, on me. <laughs> Although I will say, uh, I did see some people saying, uh, "Well, this is how Tottenham are. Tottenham play dirty. Uh, Pochettino teams play dirty." I was like, "Is this the first week you've watched football and you just created your Twitter account and this is your opinion now?" I mean, uh, this is the first season since well, the last two years that I uh, haven't heard somebody say that we're the best. Uh, team they've seen play that year. Uh, and that's obviously because Manchester City are there. But we tend to play very free, open football. We don't really go lunging into challenges. Okay, one Yama does, but he was doing that before anyway. We, we did not start that. Um, so anyway, yeah, I've just been really surprised to see how many people are saying Spurs play dirty. Uh, I certainly do not think that's the case. If, if people are listening to this, they're like, oh, yeah, they are. Feel free to uh, provide examples. I'm not saying that in an antagonistic way. I just genuinely uh, had not seen anyone say that before 
this week. I think um, I think that's probably just this is probably like the second game that anyone's ever seen like a few bad t- uh, Tottenham challenges, hmm. and and like the f- the first game being like the one against Chelsea at Stamford Bridge oh, in like twenty fifteen yeah, okay. or whatever. Yeah, the dirtiest, the dirtiest <laughs> game of all time. That one was really bad, and the Clattenburg comments were weird. If you don't know what we're talking know, about, yeah. look up Clattenburg's comments on the Chelsea Tottenham match, and what would that have been twenty fifteen? I yeah. guess. I think it was 2015, yeah. Yeah, that was that was a gosh. You're right. If somebody who had an accident the day after that Chelsea match and woke up yesterday, yeah, you could definitely make yeah. the argument that we <laughs> yeah, are a fair very, enough then. <laughs> yeah, a very dirty team indeed. Uh, all right, we are going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with uh, Club Topics. All right, and we are back. Uh, Zach, you said something very interesting um, when we were doing match reviews when you mentioned that it's good to not have to deal with the manager constantly having like a blind spot that everybody sees but he doesn't. But as a as a external uh, fan, as somebody that's not a fan of Liverpool, to me it seems to be the defense. It seems like Jurgen Klopp continually says that his defense is good enough uh, and I, I feel like, uh, just stepping into like a management kind of mindset, I feel like that's to give confidence to the players under him, right? You don't want to just go out and say, oh, yeah, he's trash. Um, so I get that mm-hmm. aspect of it. But he continually uh, just glosses over it when it seems to be the only thing preventing you from being very legitimate title contenders. Maybe not this season just because of the year city you're having. But I'm just curious to get your take on, on why you think Jurgen Klopp is so adamant that the defense isn't an issue when apparently it so very much is. Um, it, it is actually a bit of an interesting question, to be fair. Um, yeah, for me, earlier when I was mentioning about Klopp um, learning from the, you know the, the fatigue aspect from last season, um, I wasn't saying that he doesn't have blind spots. Um, I think it was I was just trying to say that he sort of like learnt from that issue. Um, in my opinion, he definitely does have blind spots. Um, the goalkeeping situation with Mignolet um, has gone on far too long. And then, obviously, as you mentioned, Dan Lovren. Mm. Um, he, he's definitely, like, he's not he, he's not the player that we wanted him to be when we signed him from Southampton. I mean, at the time, I didn't really want us to sign him anyway. But, um, yeah, I just don't think he's mentally capable of, like, being a, a top four defender, in, you know, in the Champions League. He's, his concentration, you know, dwindles sometimes and... It's, I think, um, obviously, like you say, Klopp just wants to like keep confidence in players, and Lovren is kind of like um, he just needs to like be massaged into like feeling confident and stuff like that. So I think that's like I think that's Klopp's man management coming in there. Um, I think the reason it's interesting that you mentioned that about um, him glossing over it. Um, it is it's a bit of a weird one to explain. If you watch Liverpool's poor defensive displays are often caused by individual errors and personnel. Mm. The actual, I, I'm a believer that the system that we actually employ as a team works quite well. We allow pretty much, I think this was definitely true last season and it was true for parts of this season. I'm not sure if it's, if it's fully, um, if we are fully like top of this league, if, if you, if, if so to speak, but in terms of shots on target on our goal, we allow very little, and that's because of the pressing action in midfield, and you know our, our ability to like get bodies around the ball in the edge of our box when when we we are you know attacked, um, and we do tend to keep teams at arm's length with like say seventy percent possession as well. This is these are like the lower teams in the league. Um, it just seems that like we're we're miss for one we're missing a one yama character in 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 the midfield. Um, Henderson, Wijnaldum, and Emery Chan. N- n- 
none of those three players are good enough defensively to like be the number six in a team that you know is going to be keeping clean sheets regularly. And then it, I can only describe them as brain farts, basically that that, <laughs> Mignolet, that people like Mignolet and Claven, even though he's playing quite well at the moment, and Lovren come up with. Um, honestly, so, sometimes starting with Lovren, as you saw um, in the Spurs game when when you beat us four one. Yeah, what was he um, trying to do? Oh man, see, then they like started two 0 down. We started that game minus two, basically. Yeah, like he he literally just decided that right, this is going to be one of those days where I'm just I'm just not going to defend. And these are like it's these individual errors and these these personnel issues that are killing us in terms of like challenging for major honors. Um, and you could obviously you could argue that th- this is this is Klopp's fault. He's not replaced Lovren. Um, when he didn't get Van Dijk, why didn't he get his second best choice? I mean, in the past when we've gone for a second best choice, we've ended up with with Mane and Salah. Um, That's so gone well. It's not, exactly. So it's not as if you know our scouting department is poor. There were obviously there must have been other players on the table than Van Dijk that were recommended to Klopp. So it's it, it, there, it, there is an argument for you know he th- this is a massive blind spot for him, and also the fact that. He he obviously believes that this that this squad will get him top four again and they can build again and then hopefully chance for trophies again next season. Um, so yeah, it's a weird one. In terms of the actual defensive system, we're actually pretty good. I mean, I read a stat on Twitter and I wasn't expecting to be saying it, so I can't remember it exactly. Hmm. But Liverpool have like the most clean sheets over like the last twenty one games or something in the Premier League, and it's two more than City. The problem with Liverpool is we either concede zero or we concede two or mm. three. And that and that's the issue. And when we concede two or three, it, they usually come in short bursts. Like we'll concede in like the sixtieth minute and then concede again in the sixty fifth. Like it, it's as if like we don't have any like Roy Keynes to like sort of like take it by the scruff of the neck and just get everyone to like focus up and like, you know, get it out of the system and then go again. It's 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 a real it's it is a problem. It's definitely a mental problem for me. Um, everyone at Liverpool is an able footballer. It's just um, sometimes I think the, the concentration and I don't know. Sometimes you know it, this pressing game is overemphasized and like people go on about it a lot. And it's and sometimes I feel like we press so much that we get drawn out of position. And that's how you—that's how you beat pressing teams. You, you know, if you move the ball quick enough and avoid the press, then you've got oceans of space because there's probably two players out of position. So it's a weird one. It, um, to me, the system actually does work. The system—that's why Klopp gets so irritated when people say that he can't manage, you know, a defense. Um, but then, obviously, sometimes the stats don't back it up, and we've conceded like 19 goals away from home, which is at least what, like two a game, something daft. Obviously, massively slanted with the Spurs and City results, five nil and four one. But yeah, we, we do. We are sometimes we actually are good at defending, but then it doesn't get as much sort of like news traction as when mm. we concede three away at Watford, which is fair enough because conceding three away away at Watford is what's going to stop you competing for titles and, and trophies. So, you know, that's the big news, I suppose. Yeah, I, I'm really glad you brought up the away result because I don't know that that clean sheet set. I'm perfectly willing to just roll along with that. Um, but it is of note that Liverpool have the best home defense this year. Um, which I think a lot of people might know, so it might be falling along those lines of well, that when you are keeping clean sheets, you're tending to do it at home, and when you're conceding that, like two or three, yeah. uh, that's happening away. 
and uh, <laughs> without looking into it more statistically, uh, since it's been mentioned during this show, uh, that does seem to kind of fall in line with what I'm remembering, and I, I assume probably for you as well. I'm just going to say, um, I've just managed to find that stat on Twitter, and it is uh, Liverpool have got 13 clean sheets in the last 24 Premier League games, um, and the next one is City on 12. So yeah, it's, it, it, that's football. <laughs> it's just Interesting stuff, yeah. And, and that's why, went, not to start a whole thing about stats, but that's one of the reasons why I think statistics are really important in football is because people tend to stick to their memories very, very stringently and, uh, you know, bringing up Liverpool's defensive struggles. And then you have something like that, that e- even if it isn't designed to make you change your mind, it's at least enough to make you think about it more. Uh, and I think yeah. that's that's one of the important things there. Uh, do you have any questions for a <laughs> why am I doing a show like this after we lost the city that badly Tottenham fan? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I've got one for the the January transfer window. Um, I, re- I saw your tweet a couple of days ago that um, um, Holtby was the last player that he signed in January, and <laughs> as far as I'm aware, this, this is this is an old transfer. I can't remember him playing for you for many many years. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, do you, do you think that 2018 is finally going to be the the January where you add some some more depth to your team? Oh, <sighs> the especially given even the yes. fact that. <laughs> Especially given the fact that you've had like Wanyama and, and Alderweireld out for you know decent periods of time, and yeah. you know you could do with some cover in those departments, I suppose. Yeah, and we're gonna we're we're getting Lamella back. Hashtag like a new signing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the Holby thing. I think it was twelve thirteen, if memory serves, and he was the last player we fully bought. We technically bought Della Ali uh, in January, I think two years after that, but he obviously didn't join until the end of the season. So we haven't bolstered in January since Holby. I think before that. It was the year that on deadline day we signed Luis Saha and Ryan Nelson on freeze. Um, oh, that was a, that was a very mad day. <laughs> it was um, Ryan Nelson out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, and I think he scored like a winning header against somebody in the whatever the Capital One Cup was called that year because it seems to be different yeah. every season. Um, <laughs> which is weird. And Luis Saha had a, I think a hat trick against Everton. Anyway, we're just we're just testing my memory at this point. But um, unfortunately, no, I don't think we're going to sign. Uh, anybody in January, and we're super not going to sign Gareth Bale in January. Um, if we were to sign anyone, I know it's somebody Liverpool have talked to a lot. Um, I know that uh, this player already met with Mauricio Pochettino, much like your Virgil van Dijk thing, uh, and it is Fulham quote-unquote left back Ryan Sessegnon. Now, something that people that have uh, not really heard his name since the offseason uh, may be disappointed to find out that he's been playing more in midfield than defensively. Uh, and we actually had a Fulham representative on our championship show uh, saying that he thinks long-term that's his best position. I don't think that'll particularly come as a surprise considering the goal-scoring rate he had as a as a wing-back. Um, obviously, at Tottenham, for example, we already had a left-back that was like that. And then he became Gareth Bale. Um, but for, for all the fans that are listening to this that are like, oh, Ryan Sessegnon, young, cheap left-back, uh, young is correct. The other two, probably not so much anymore. Um, but that was the only one I thought was was really likely is that we would sign him, have him join in the summer. I still think there's a chance we could do a uh, morally and legally shady agreement with Barkley to sign him in the summer. Um, he does uh, 
I'm not going to go with words because words can get misconstrued by actions would have preferred to move to us uh, than Chelsea based on all of the foolishness that happened on deadline day. I think we are still interested in him, but if he goes to open market in the summer, I do not think we would be able to sign him. I think our best chance would be to uh, kind of sign him pre-contract, even though you aren't technically supposed to be able to do that uh, within the same league. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised, you know, phone calls were made and assurances were made um, even if it couldn't be finalized. But outside of those, it's really hard to say. I mean, we're going to get Toby back in February, which is when we're really going to need him. We have just an insane run. I, I don't have it up right now, but it's like United, Arsenal, Liverpool, Juventus, somebody, Juventus, because we obviously drew them in the Champions League. And that will be a bit of a nightmare. Um, obviously very fun for the fans that are there. They get to go to all these high-profile matches. But for me, it's just going to be endless nerves for, throughout my entire birth month. And it's going to largely suck. <clears throat> but to, to your question, unfortunately, I don't think we're going to be signing anybody in January, which is really frustrating to me. because and, and historically, it's been frustrating because we've been so close. Multiple years, we missed out on top four by a single point, including the year we lost it to Chelsea when they won the title. If we had finished one point higher, we would have finished higher than Arsenal. There was another year that we would have been level with Arsenal and we would have beaten them on goal difference. Um there are other ones where it was like within three points. There's obviously the Leicester and Chelsea years where if you had had, you know, two more wins, obviously it wouldn't have won the title mathematically uh, by the end of the season. Like if you just added on those points, but depending on where those points fell, obviously the pressures would have been different on the clubs we were chasing. Um, and and for me, I, well, when I posted this on Twitter, which you mentioned, uh, Gitto, who's obviously our Swansea correspondent, uh, made a really good point that in the January window, prices tend to be inflated. It's more of a seller's market. The summer, obviously, more of a buyer's market. But when you're talking about the, the kind of sums of money that are made different by how many places you finish higher in the league, by Champions League revenue if you've just missed it when you could have had it, or the kind of money and sponsorship opportunities that really come along once you've won a title – I I think that it would be worth it. I do know that Daniel Levy tends to be very shrewd with the money of the club, and it's one of the reasons that the fact that our stadium costs have basically doubled because of the weakening of the pound, um, we're able to deal with that because Daniel Levy always plans worst case. There's always extra money. We're just going to roll like that. Uh, it's one of the reasons we're so uh, miserly when it comes to contracts, even though I think it would be better to just pay Toby. Um but, yeah, so in January, I think it would be wiser of us to spend money, and I think the numbers would check out come the end of the year. But Levy would rather not, and so we just kind of don't. It's mm, fair enough. It's, this is very similar thing that happens at Liverpool, to be honest. Um, oh, yeah? yeah, Klopp and seemingly the Liverpool hierarchy don't seem to want to spend money during the January, you know, the January transfer window. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not particularly hopeful heading into it. The last time we signed anyone in January, as far as I recall, was Coutinho and Sturridge in mm. twelve thirteen also? That uh, was Suarez was also a fantastic uh, window. Obviously not the same year, but he was also January, right? Yeah, but so was Andy Carroll on, on this pretty much the same day. So, <laughs> so that's <laughs> that a watch. Ba- ba- balances out that one. Um, yeah, we've had some success in January transfer market. Um, it just didn't last like three or four years. It just seems like we're not really interested. I mean, Virgil van Dijk's being talked about at the moment, but I think if there's any business to be done in January, it's going to be Emery Chan leaving on a. Well, not leaving, but, you know, agreeing a pre-contract with Bayern or Juve. Oh, interesting. Does that sound on? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that he's, he'll um, he'll sign a, sign a pre-contract this January. Do you think that his having not really played much of late is a reaction to him leaving or that him leaving is a reaction to not getting the minutes that he probably deserves? Um, it's probably... 
I, I don't. I think him leaving is not to do with minutes because until this situation sort of arose, he was like, he was the main man in midfield basically. Obviously, Henderson's playing in his spot, if, if that's what he wants to in call it. Quotes, yeah, yeah, basically, yeah. And um, yeah, it wasn't to do with minutes. I, I, from his side of things, he's saying that he wants to leave because um, he wants to. He wants guarantees that he'll play in the six. In my opinion, he should be playing in the six. Um, but at the same time. Klopp wants to shoehorn Henderson in there somewhere. So I can see if, if that is truly the reason he wants to leave, then I can see where he's coming from because it's definitely not money. We can pay more than Bayern and Juve, um, you know, despite the fact we're nowhere near as successful. Yeah, just because um, the English market has so much more money in it. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So we can pay him more money. Um, and he's obviously playing in a top league. Um, and hopefully he'll have Champions League football again next season. Um, but yeah, I think it's more to do with the fact that he wants to be a, a number six and... To be fair, if you if you were looking back on John Henderson's career before Klopp, you would have said that he is a number eight, and you would say that Emery Chan is a number six. So when Klopp's come in and swapped them around, it's it's a bit weird. And you know, I I, I personally believe that we are a better, a better team with with Emery Chan in the six. But yeah, it's mm. it's obviously not to be, and I think he's going to leave. Interesting. All right. Well, uh, so Tottenham and Liverpool fans, if you're listening to this, which there are probably a lot of you since those are the hashtags that are going to be used when this is posted. Um, sounds like we're going to have slow Januaries all around. Um, all right. We're going to move into player watch right now, uh, where, uh, both of us are having decent seasons. Tottenham's is way more up and down than we would have liked. Uh, oh, probably yours as well, following those home and away splits. Uh, but just curious as to if there are any players that you think are struggling to live up to their potential at the moment. Uh, yeah, I couldn't. I don't know. As you say, like we're both we're both having pretty decent seasons. Um, I thought this was a bit of a hard one because I haven't been massively like down on any Liverpool players this season. Just more the fact that you know City are so far ahead. It's it's kind of a you know it's a bit of a bummer. Um, but I, if you were to look at anyone, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna like throw the defense under the under the bus sort of thing because like we know that Mignolet and Lovren just aren't good enough. So there's no point talking about about those two. They're not they're not living up to they probably are living up to their potential, to be honest. They're just not supposed to be at Liverpool. Um, so I was, I was kind of looking at the midfield. Um, all three of them, to be honest. So I'm looking at Henderson, Wijnaldum and, and Emre Chan. Mm. Henderson, in my opinion, since he had those heel injuries, um, you know, he's, he's been struggling with this new number six role that Klopp sort of like cultivated for him. Um, I think he, I always thought, and I still do, I always thought he's more suited to you know the number eight where he could be more, you know a mobile player getting around the park. And, um, you know, the further up the park you play, the more instinctive it has to be. So I think Henderson is better when he has less time to think. And that, that includes stuff like finishing, passing, even even pressing maybe. Like, you know, sort of when, when it's like a snap decision rather than like seeing the flight of the ball or, you know, having loads of time, which you tend to do in the six. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I kind of feel like he's... He's been made a massive scapegoat this season, and it is because he is kind of struggling with this role. So I've thrown him in there, but I understand there is, there is some difficult circumstances for him. Um, and then Emery, see, I've said Emery Chan, but I, I think he's a really good player. But like, he's so frustrating at times. Like sometimes I just look at him and think, yeah, maybe the contract situation is having a, having a bit of a, you know, a bit of a, an effect here. But I just look at him and think, you, I know you're only young, but you could be so much better already. Like. He's got everything, and sometimes you just watch him, and he's so frustrating to watch. And I can imagine that like a lot of people that don't support Liverpool think Emery Chan isn't a very good player, but 
he is actually a very good player and it's going to be a big loss when we do eventually lose him in January or in the summer. But at the same time, like I feel like he could he could be a bit higher along in his progression. But maybe that's just because this season he's had these contract issues and he's playing out position technically. So I think when he goes to UV or Bayern or wherever he goes, he's going to be a really good player. Um, and I've also put Wijnaldum in there simply because he still hasn't scored an away goal in the Premier <laughs> and <laughs> And like this season, last season, I thought it was brilliant. Um, it, after January, he was one of our best players, if not the best player. Um, but this season, he's playing a slightly different role in the fact that um, he has to um, be a lot more disciplined with his with his holding. Like he, even today, you could see he was just loitering around the halfway line with Henderson rather than bombing on and trying to affect the play. Um, so I suppose in terms of like living up to potential. He's doing his job, but you know when when Genie Wijnaldum first broke through, I'm sure we both believed that he was going to be like a 10 goal, 12 goal a season yeah. attacking midfielder. So it just feels a bit weird. But I think I think the biggest issue is just that he, he tends to drift in and out of games. So that's that's the reason why I put him down. But I'm still I'm still really fond of the player. I still still think he's very useful for Liverpool. Yeah, uh, a lot of your points on Chain, you could just kind of copy and paste over to my thoughts on Della Ali. Uh, where the potential is clearly there. Also, I, I do very much see the potential in Emery Chan. I, I didn't know there were people out there that thought he wasn't that that thought he wasn't that good. Um, but Della is, is just falling so short of, I'm sure, his own expectations, but also those uh, of the fans, because um, we've we've seen how good he can be. Like it's evidenced. Um, it's just not currently how he's playing, which is very frustrating. Also, um, <laughs> for longtime listeners of the show, that now I have just this weird love-hate thing with Christian Eriksen. The only uh, reason I, I ever really come down hard on him is because I think if he had a different mentality, he would have already been world-class by now. He obviously still has world-class moments. Uh, just ask any Ireland fan um, from what was a must-win match to put Denmark into the World Cup. Um, he has that. He, he's always had that world-class ability. The issue is I don't think he's a world-class player, and I don't think he'll, he will become one um, just because he doesn't have – and this is obviously a hard thing to say as somebody that doesn't personally know him, but he doesn't seem to have that, like, fiery drive to be the best. Like, you see that in Harry Kane constantly. Um, mm. I think Erickson is <laughs> too happy, like, too comfortable with his life. <laughs> like, he's, he's fine being as good as he is, which is very, very good. But I don't think he has that drive to be the best in the world. I don't think, you know, he, he's looking at other central attacking midfielders and stacking himself up against them. I don't think he's he's pursuing that kind of education the way, like, Kane has buddied up to Rooney and Shearer uh, just to continually try to get better and stuff like that. Um, I don't know. That, that's just kind of a, a fan's take. Again, I don't personally know him, but... Uh, that's why I'm no longer frustrated with Ericsson as, as I finally accepted that he probably is the player he's going to be. Um, maybe the ratio of amazing games to not as good games will improve, um, but I, I don't think he's ever going to be that player that, you know, one day seemed destined to lead by uh, uh, Barca's a- attack, which for like a long time, like when he was at Ajax, that was like the assumed move because of the relationship between the two clubs, the play style. He seemed like a pure number 10. Oh, this is going to be perfect. He isn't even a pure number 10 anymore. I think largely because of Pochettino. We force him to track back. He keeps being one of the most distance-traveled players that we have at Tottenham, which to me kind of seems not uh, 
what he would be best suited for. But Pochettino seems to think it best suits the whole team, uh, and I guess we just have to take that. But my dreams of Eriksen just being the next Van der Vaart, uh, obviously uh, far from, from being what has transpired. All right, uh, and we will wrap up here with match previews. Um, you have a big one on a Friday uh, mm. against Arsenal, obviously going there. What are you thinking about this one? Obviously, uh, the defense we already mentioned, probably not too confident, but uh, Arsenal struggling to keep clean sheets without Mustafi, so you must be pretty confident going the other way. Um, yeah, um, I'm, I'm quite apprehensive about it. Um, you know, the game's taken on a bit more importance in recent, well, in the last week, basically, with you know, with us throwing four points away against Everton and West Brom. So, you know, we really could do with, with at the very least a point in this game, if not if not all three, to stay in touch with Chelsea and, and United as well. Um, you know, we, we've we've won we've won the last three against Arsenal with a score aggregate of ten five, and in front of those there was two draws. So we are good. We have we do have good form against Arsenal, despite the fact that for many years they were a massive bogey team for us. Um, it should be a good game for the neutral as well. Um, you know, neither team is likely to sit in, and neither team is particularly good at defending either. So, you know, I expect to see like a 3-2 or a 4-3 scoreline or something mad. Um, you know, we've seen what Liverpool can do to teams when they come when they come away from their own penalty area. You know, Bournemouth today uh, with the 4-0, uh, Spartak Moscow the other week with you know, with the 7-0. Um, so I'm going to say, I, I'm going I'm to go with my heart and say that, yeah, we can, we can go and get the win. Um, I think our away performances have improved of late, you know, with, with the start I mentioned earlier about us winning four in a row with a three-goal margin. So, uh, you know, at the start of the season when we were conceding for fun, like we conceded five at the Etihad, um, four against you guys, and then three against Watford as well on the first day of the season. Um, I think I don't think we're as bad defensively away from home as we were, you know, at the start of the season. Um, I think we're getting there now. Um, a, you know, a little bit at a time, um, and we've also we've also scored 16 goals in like our last four away games in the league. So we, we are very good going forward. We're at a good moment. Um, yeah, I feel like we could we could do something down there. Hopefully, it'll get us get us the win, and it'll be a happy Christmas weekend. Yeah, weirdly, uh, we have a, a tough one of a different kind of variety, traveling to Turf Moor, uh, where they are notoriously good uh, at home and also notoriously good. Uh, at not being broken down. Um, they probably will have Ward back in time for this one, uh, just in time to be frustrating for us. Um, but simultaneously, ever since they've lost Robbie Brady, the amount of chances they've created uh, has plummeted. Uh, credit to Johan Berg-Goodmanson, who has, has largely picked up the slack for them. But I think, it, obviously, it, it was way easier when you had that kind of attacking threat on both flanks. And now that you've just taken one down, I think we'll probably just shade the defense that way. Um, to kind of prevent him from really doing much, uh, kind of let DeFore or, or Cork have to try to beat you, which they've done to, to lesser opposition. Just hopefully they wouldn't be able to do it to us. I don't think Wanyama will be back in time, although he is in first-team training at a, a time of recording. Um, I really don't know what team we're going to see because we, we rolled real heavy in that Manchester City match. Um, I don't know if we keep Rose in that spot to deal with Goodmanson. I, I don't know if uh, he has that kind of profile yet where people know that he should kind of be accounted for as he is one of their main threats at the moment. Um, but if not, it would be standard wingback rotation, which would line up uh, Aurier and Davis at the wingbacks. Probably still um, Dyer and Vertonghen, although I think Davinson's suspension is over now. Man, really should have known that before I started recording. Um, <laughs> but if Davinson is back, uh, then I think he would be 
Uh, oh, he is, yeah. Uh, so probably Davinson and Jan at the back, and then Dyer up in midfield with one of Winks and Dembele, which I mentioned earlier. Uh, I, I like both of those players. I just don't think they're a very good pairing. Um, like I said, I'd, I'd keep Della on the bench. I'd probably roll Lamella, Erickson, Son, and then Kane, obviously, at the top there. I, I would expect that's how we'd roll out against Burnley. <clears throat> in theory, we are the quote-unquote better team, but it's very hard to argue with what Dice has done thus far. Um, I would, I would uh, un- sadly take a draw. I'm, I'm obviously hoping for the win. Uh, I think we may rebound well uh, after the City match, um, but <laughs> that may have just been such an expected result that, that it won't really have much of an effect. Uh, but, I'll, but I'll say I, I think we win. Um, not sure if we'd keep a clean sheet. I think Davinson coming back greatly increases the chances of it, though. This might just be one of those really boring 1-1s or even more one nils, or even more devastating, one of those late 1-1s, uh, which is what they did to us the first time uh, with a late goal from, I think it was Chris Wood on his debut, which was very frustrating at the time. Uh, but that will do it for us today. So, uh, Zach, tell the folks where they can find you. Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter, at ZachForster underscore. Um, yeah, and that's about it. Not, I haven't done any writing for a while, so there's nothing to look out for just yet, but I am hopefully going to be getting back into it. So if, if there is to be anything soon, it will be on my Twitter account there. Yep, be sure to follow him. Uh, a, a good guy to follow for sure. Uh, I'm your host, Kevin DeVries. I'm on Twitter at Kevroff. I also uh, am the lead fantasy writer over at Goal, so be sure to go check that out under the gaming tab. Uh, also, we have a fantasy show. Uh, next one of those should be going up on... Hmm. Wednesday, I suppose. <laughs> Haven't talked to Rob about that at all, so uh, we'll see if that actually happens. Uh, of course, you should also listen to our uh, in-house fantasy and championship shows where you can get information like Sessegnon uh, likely being shifted into the midfield long term. Uh, thanks so much for joining me, Zach. It was a, a pleasure having you back on. Prodigal Son returning and all that. Folks at home, thank you for listening. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.